The subject for this morning came out of a long-distance conversation I had with a friend who, on this leg of the uh, political season, spoke of observing one of the candidates. And her sense was that, on an occasion, this candidate seemed to rise above the rabble or float above the crowd by suspending the battle. however briefly, and speaking from a place of larger vision, a place of what she called non-competition. That's the first part of the title. The idea of non-competition was appealing to my sense of inclusiveness or non-exclusion. From there, my thoughts went to uh, a line from the movie War Games. War Games is a movie about a computer that runs the thermonuclear warfare for for the United States. And in the process of the movie, the computer has to learn that in thermonuclear war and also in tic tac toe, the only way to win is not to play. So that, from there, we get the second part of my title, The Way of Winning. Uh, In her book, The Yin-Yang of American Culture, A Paradox, a young Korean woman named Yoon Wai Kim writes, For competitive Americans who hate losing everything in life is a game. To win. Looking out for number one, Americans love to compete on and off the job. She also refers to the quote from Vince Lombardi that winning is not the only thing, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. And talks about how sports have given us metaphors and expressions that are often employed by the business world such as playing in the big leagues, uh, slam dunk, striking out, touchdown. Competition is clearly a large part of our cultural orientation, and I suppose necessary in some aspects, maybe even many of them, like commercial ventures and, I guess, politics, even entertainment. But in a religious community, based on honoring diversity, it presents a dynamic that can be particularly counterproductive. Franklin Roosevelt noted that competition has been shown to be useful up to a certain point and no further. But cooperation which is the thing we must strive for today, begins where competition leaves off. We like to be right. We like to be more right than everybody else. 
Have you ever had the experience of starting to tell someone about a problem? They begin to try to help you with the problem. And before you know it, you're arguing for why it's much worse than they think it is. And why all of their help is useless. Seems to be that this happens pretty regularly with, you know, some of us. But when we argue for something, we cannot help but become more attached to that idea and believe more in what we're arguing for. We're suddenly more invested in the problem than the solution, which then sets up cognitive dissonance that in turn creates more anxiety and results in us getting pretty worked up about the whole thing. Voila, our competitive nature just won over our good sense, and we lost. The Buddha taught in a controversy the instant we feel anger, we have already ceased striving for the truth and have begun striving for ourselves. Once the adrenaline begins pumping, which is almost always if there's competition involved, we're under the influence. Our interests are veering off on a more off of a more global track and headed for possibly a very different destination than what we intended. As a spiritual community, if we approach the broader community or even one another from a competitive angle, we've already lost sight of the goals and have become caught up in a game that diminishes our potential. Because we're not in competition with other churches. Not not only because in this community we stand alone as an alternative, but that alternative is created by our learning to coexist with ideas that conflict with our own. We are here to offer an alternative to choosing sides in the ongoing conflicts. We claim to want peace, healing, and cooperation for all peoples of the world. What sets us apart is our willingness to keep trying to embrace our differences, respect the positions and conclusions of others. What sets us apart is our commitment to keep trying to deal with considerable dissimilarities in ways that are not dismissive or condescending, but rather accepting, respectful, and supportive. These are skills that require a great deal of practice 
to develop. And this is the one place we can practice those things and maybe not do perfectly, but forgive each other and practice it some more and move on. I found a book by a rabbi named Brad Hirschfield uh, entitled "You Don't Have to You Don't Have to Be Wrong for Me to Be Right." In it, he writes about that kind of inclusion, beginning with a quote from the Hebrew, Hebrew prophet Isaiah, and I'm going to be quoting his text here. Uh, My house will be a house of prayer for all peoples, says the prophet Isaiah, and his vision of what the world will be like after the Messiah comes. The beauty and wisdom of this vision has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in Isaiah, the Messiah, or God. Most of us have imagined a perfect world, or at least a world less blighted by poverty, disease, and bloodshed than the one we now inhabit. Isaiah's prophetic vision of a perfect world rests on the principle that perfect looks different to different people. Isaiah's house of prayer is for all peoples, plural, not singular. It most emphatically does not require a flattening out of all distinctions. It's not a world in which everyone shares the same set of beliefs. And all differences have been erased and all bumps smoothed. It is not a world in which everyone who disagrees with me will eventually think the way I think and believe what I believe. Isaiah's prophetic vision is far more ambitious and attainable. It envisions unity without demanding uniformity. His house of prayer is a place where we will all be able to stand under one roof with our differences on display. We won't need to check any part of who we are at the door in order to get in. Whether we're a born-again Christian, Hasid, Shiite, Sunni, Republican, or Democrat. Non-competition. Like James Carville and Mary Matlin, a committed Democrat and a passionate Republican who are married to each other must have found there are just some things that are more valuable than keeping score. We must value our common humanity more than the ideas that divide us. Rabbi Hirschfeld tells the story of Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. It is initially a place where Abraham, Sarah, and their children were buried. The burial place is a cave. When the Muslims took control of that area, they built a mosque above the cave because Abraham is also the father of Ishmael. 
and it's a sacred place for them too. In the Crusades, the Christians came in, and because they honored Abraham, they turned the mosque into a church. Over the years, as power shifted back and forth, the building was a mosque, then it was a church, then it was a mosque, then it was a church, until the Ottoman Empire, when the uh, Muslims had authority over it for all the time, for a stretch, until 1967, when the state of Israel got control, and it became a synagogue. Well, with all of these people struggling for the same place, and all because they valued it, it took the politicians to step in and have enough sense to make it so that all people had access. But because the politicians were not grounded in spiritual reasoning for their uh, rules and policies, a lot of the policies were disregarded and the conflict of ideas continues. At some point, in other places in the area, um, there have been the same kinds of disputes. Mufti of Al-Aqsa, who is the head of the third most sacred Muslim um, site in the area, and the chief rabbi of Israel got in a fight about this. Uh, Mufti said that there had never been a Jewish temple in Jerusalem, much less two of them, that it had always been Muslim. And the rabbi said not only was it Jewish, but it was Jewish seven layers down into the earth and seven layers up into the heavens. Now, all of this begins to sound like Lieutenant General Boykin when when he's saying, my God's bigger than their God. But it's all because they valued the same place and let their differences be more important than the similarities and their common ground. Why is it that to make things, even spiritual things, more ours, we so often have to make them less someone else's? Do our children need to be failures in order for Do other children need to be failures in in order for ours to be a success? Do other people's partners have to be ugly so that ours can be beautiful? In love and beauty, we can make room for differences, or at least we seem to know that we should, but we have a harder time applying that expansiveness to tradition and truth. And we tend to give a lot more credit to people whose truth looks like ours. No matter who we are, your experiences are not my experience. My experiences are not your experience. And I can't help but wonder if the five men, uh, the five blind men that dealt with the elephant instead of talking about it, started fighting each other if they wouldn't end up blind and lame. And on top of that, none of them would agree with the elephant 
on what elephantness is. Again from Hirschfield, it has been said that the opposite of truth is not a lie, but a bigger truth. Truth is not found by falsifying everything else. When we do that, we're trying to make truth small, an irreducible essence. But truth is an additive process, again, like the five blind men and the elephant. That does not mean that truth needs to be relativistic or relative. There are things that we can stand for and stand against without having to be in competition. Hirschfield makes reference to... uh, in order to make the world better or for a, let's see, I don't have to think it's okay for people to blow up buildings with innocent people inside or for adults to have sex with children to initiate them into their own sexuality or for people to shoot physicians who perform abortions because that's what God demands. He says, I'm willing to fight against those things. I believe in truth with a capital T. But truth has to be bigger than any one time or place. It has to be more than a firmly stated commitment to those things in which we already believe. It has to be so big that it demands modesty and constant re-evaluation on our parts. No matter how much information we accumulate, no matter how many degrees we earn or how much we read and study, no matter how many hours, days, or months we spend in prayer or meditation, no matter how many causes we contribute to or how many years we work for the disadvantaged, we will never know the whole story, or have all of the truth. Acknowledging that one fact and then continuing, nevertheless, to pursue truth and wisdom, understanding, and connection with the divine, this is the mark of character. This is where hope begins. When our vision is sufficiently clear, our truth grows and we with it. Buddha said, he who experiences the unity of life sees his own self in all beings and all beings in his own self and looks on everything with an impartial eye. Those who people on both sides of the conflict can look to. And trust. Are the ones that are most likely to build lasting bridges.
That's why non-competition and the way of winning is not to play the game.